0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. But that's never the purpose or intention of the Old Testament. It's real important that we see the whole Old Testament through the promise of Genesis chapter 12. Very important. That God intended not only to bless Abraham, but through Abraham to bless the nations. Okay? His plan was to bring His goodness and grace, His promise, to many peoples in many places and many lands through Abraham and his descendants. Okay, And I believe that's true. And I believe you really need to see and read the Old Testament through that light. And there's examples like the book of Jonah where God has to remind Israel of their calling. And it wasn't just about Israel. They were to be blessing the world. And they kind of lost sight of that. Uh, and then it comes to us. Uh, if it's true of Abraham, is it true of us? Does God bless you? I mean, first of all, this morning, how many of you feel blessed? Okay, a few of you. Some of you will pray for you. God's blessing in your life. Um you should, you know, we, we, we are incredibly blessed by God's goodness. And whether we feel it or not, or whether we're aware of it, God, through His grace, is pouring out abundantly His blessings. Uh, but is He doing that just for you to consume it yourself selfishly, soaking up all God's goodness? Or, like Abraham, is there a principle here that God's blessing in our life is always intended to be a channel by which He blesses others as well? Well, I would say uh, that's, that's a true principle we can take from the life of Abraham and from Genesis 12. Uh, God doesn't bless you just so you will be happy, although he loves you. He, Jesus said, I told you these things so your joy will be full. Uh, like Grace said this morning, we, we need to come and know God's joy, and God wants you to know that. But it's not the kind of thing that we selfishly just hoard to ourselves, right? And look at the rest of the world and go, man, it just must suck to be you that you can't be as happy as me. Because I am blessed, and you're not, right? Well, that's not it. We are to be channels of God's blessing. God blesses us, and the principle is that we, in turn, will bless the nations, and we'll bless others. So, let's see how that works. And in chapter 14, uh, we see the beginning of God's blueprint for this, okay, what this is going to look like in the Old Testament and on into the New Testament. Um, So... So let's look at at Genesis 14, and really we're going to answer the question, how can we be a blessing to others? Uh, How can we be a blessing to uh, the nations, to the world, to our friends, to those around us? And uh, there's at least three ways. This morning I'm only going to get to one, sadly. Uh, The second two blessings we're not going to get to today, but the first blessing we want to look at. And the, the story starts off with a bunch of really hard names to pronounce, so here we go. Let me read the first part of the story here. About this time, war broke out in the region uh, King uh, Amraphel of Babylonia, King Arioch of Elisar, King Kedar Laomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim Fought against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, King Shemabar of Zeboyim and the King of Bela, also called Zaor. Okay, now for future reference, cause I'm not going to do that again. Okay, let me just explain. There's two sets of kings who don't like each other. Okay, team A are the kings of the east. Okay, they're kings that came from farther in, east of, of uh, Canaan in Mesopotamia, and there were four of them. Okay, and their general was King Keterlomer. Okay? So future reference, kings of the east, okay, Team A. Okay, they came and they fought against Team B, which we're going to call the uh, Salt Sea Coalition. Okay, the Dead Sea Coalition. Okay, and it was a group of kings who lived in and around the area of the Dead Sea, Sodom and Gomorrah being two of the cities. Uh, right? And there were five of those kings. right? And uh, so the kings of the east come, and they make war against the kings of the Dead Sea, and the kings of the east win. All right? So in the way this game works, uh, if you win, you don't get a trophy. Instead, you get to collect tribute from the people you beat every year. So I think, I, think, I think sports should work this way. You, know, like you, you compete, and when you win, the other people have to pay you for the next, till you, you know, compete again, right? That's how it worked here. So they paid tribute annually. Okay, so picture it's a bug's life, right? you got the ants paying tribute to the grasshoppers. Remember the movie? Same thing. It's different characters. And so that's what's happened. So, for, so, so that's what's happened. Uh, the second group of kings joined forces uh, in the Valley of Sadim, Sidim, Sidim and, Fr- and, and they won, and so for 12 years, they had been subject to king, the kings of the east. Uh, but in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. Okay, so 13th year rolls around, and they said, we've been paying this stupid tribute long enough. We're just not going to pay it this year. right? We're, we're, we're calling for a rematch, right? because we just don't want to pay this tribute anymore. So they didn't. Okay, that's what it means to rebel. Okay, They rebelled means we're not paying you anymore. So one year later, on the 14th year, the kings of the East, da da da, da uh, assembled, and they turned uh, to a bunch of places, and uh, they followed the king's highway, uh, looting and pillaging. Basically what they did, short, short story here, is they took a reunion tour. Okay? It's what all good famous bands do. Uh, you, you know, when, you're, when you're broke and you're not paying tribute, you, you put together a reunion tour. And uh, apparently on the, road, on the route to the, the Dead Sea, they got lost because they actually missed the Dead Sea and took a path way south of the Dead Sea following what's known as the King's Highway. And uh, it's interesting in Deuteronomy, when the Israelites uh, take the Promised Land, they go from Kadesh around south of the Dead Sea and up the eastern side of the Jordan Valley uh, to the place where they crossed the Jordan River, pretty much on the same route that, these, that the kings of the east took. So they're on the reunion tour and they're looting and pillaging everywhere they go. Okay? And they attack these five cities, five more cities, new cities, new fresh meat, new tribute. And uh, some of these people, we know, it says the, the Rephidim and some others, we know from other places in Scripture, were giants. Okay? The point is, everywhere the kings of the East go, it's a rock and roll concert. And they are rock and rolling the cities, so to speak, and, and they are defeating everywhere they go. Okay, They are... Bullies, and they are beating up all these other cities and uh, having having a rocking good time uh, collecting tribute and pillaging and looting and dominating and feeling really all powerful and manly right so uh, they finally they finally uh, run out of places to conquer and they start turning back and they head toward the valley of the dead sea all right so that 's where we are, and it says that uh, the rebel kings of the, of the Dead Sea prepared for battle in the Valley of the Dead Sea, and they fought against the kings of the east, four kings against five. And as it happened, the Valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits, and as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into tar pits while the rest escaped to the mountains. Okay, so the kings of the east come. Uh, the uh, kings of the Dead Sea coalition march out to meet them. And it's a very short battle that looks much more like a track meet than a battle, okay? Because the kings of the east come and they just growl, apparently. It doesn't even talk about the battle. They just show up. And it says that the kings of the Dead Sea turn and run. And it says there's a couple ways you could translate it. Says New Living says they fall into the tar pits. Uh, It's also possible to translate that they hid in the tar pits. Either way, the point is... They, they vacate the valley. They run for the hills. They split. They leave. And uh, so real short battle. And the kings of the east now have free access to their cities because the armies are no longer there to protect them. All that's left back home are women and children and Lot. <laughs> and I'm not sure how Lot ended up here with all the women and children. Um, why he's not out there fighting, I don't know. But the cities are now unprotected. So uh, it says that uh, the victor- victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. They also captured uh, Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom, and carried off everything he owned. Okay? So here's the picture. The army leaves. All the fighting men leave, run to the mountains, and watch from a distance while this invading army marches into their homes and drags out their wives and children and everything they own. Okay, And they watch helpless as this entourage, this army, then marches up the Jordan Valley and heads back home. Right? So that's the battle. That's what happens. Um, and in the midst of this, uh, the result of it, I, actually, you could say, the result is that Lot his family, and all the women and children are taken captive. And they become uh, prisoners, captive to the kings of the east. Um, it's, it's interesting when you think about this, and this is really a great picture of how life is. Let me stop for just a minute and talk about kind of what this means in our life. Um, every day in the world, there is a very real enemy seeking to take us captive. And in the day of Abraham, uh, and in, in that time period, this was an everyday thing. You were either capturing somebody else or you were at risk of being captured. Okay? And these cities uh, formed these alliances to help protect themselves. And so you have this picture of these five kings. Uh, kings is kind of a big word for a very small person. Probably they were more like mayors. and you know, They were small city-states. Uh, where the head person in the, in the city or the village was called the king. Uh, sounded impressive, but not all that impressive. So they would join their kingdoms, their city-states together into alliances to help protect them because it was only a matter of time before you were invaded and somebody was trying to take you captive. Right? That's how the world worked back then. And things really have not changed. The reality is that we still live in a world where every day... There are forces seeking to take us captive. Now, of course, in our day, uh, what captive looks like has changed a lot. And we don't all, sadly, we don't all run around with swords and guns. I think that would just be so much fun. You know, just always ready for a fight, you know, just like in the movies, right? We, We don't do that. We're somehow more civilized. And we have gotten into bigger alliances and yet bigger coalitions to protect ourselves. But things haven't changed spiritually. And the reality is that what they could see physically and and visibly uh, happens every day all around us continually in the spiritual realm. Scripture is very clear that we are in the midst of spiritual battle, that there is a very real spiritual forces of darkness and evil that are uh, deliberately and intentionally seeking to take us captive, right? Jesus said to Peter, Satan is trying to sift you as wheat, okay? He is a de- devouring lion, seeking who he can kill and destroy. Right? And so the reality is that we are every day at risk of being invaded. Our life is is at risk of being taken captive by spiritual forces. Um, and uh, unlike in, in their day, you know, the the enemy was much easier and more visible because they wore swords and weapons and tried to take your head off. Uh, or they would physically take you prisoner. Today we are led astray by different things. Okay, what what drags us off today? What holds us captive? What masters us? Well, Paul says in Romans six in Romans chapter six that ultimately our sin masters us. He says if you give yourself to sin, it becomes your master. It becomes you become its slave. It becomes your captor. And you become in bondage to that sin. So when we don't get a handle on sin in our life, any kind of sin, it becomes a oppressor over us. We become captive to it, right? And getting saved, coming to Jesus, we get forgiveness of sins and the bonds of sin are broken, but the reality is a lot of people are still living quite in captive to those sins. That's why Paul wrote Romans chapter 6 to explain that even though you've been saved, you're still living in bondage, right? And I would ask you to raise your hands on this one. But how many of you still have problems sometimes with sin? You know, I know I do. It's still there. You know, um, sometimes I just ignore it. It doesn't go away. Right? The problems are there, and the consequences haunt us. Uh, this enemy has its power. Primarily through bad thoughts and ideas. Okay, Satan's primary weapons—the way he takes us captive—are by his lies. Right? So we're not taken captive by force. We're really taken captive by desire. Right? He doesn't—he uh, doesn't capture us against our will. He entices us so that we willingly choose to surrender to his power over us. Right. And he does that by tapping into our desires and lying. All right, so the lies of Satan go like this. He says, I can make you happy. You obviously aren't. Okay? And we start believing him. right? We start thinking, you know, I think you're right. I don't think I am happy. You know, he says, it's because it's your wife's fault. You know? It's your wife's fault. All right? And I have a plan to give you happiness without her all right? or without him. Or I have, He's got a thousand schemes, doesn't he? A thousand schemes, all of which are lies, to make you happy. He says, you know, your life is not very secure. You're not very safe. I can protect you. I can look after you. I will take care of you. I have a way. right? And that's what sin entices us. It, it, it promises to meet our needs, to take care of us, to look after us, to give us something we're convinced we don't have and we will not be happy without. right? And so we... Go after those things. Um, and there's obvious things, you know. Uh, you know, the obvious, obvious captor bondage would be things like addictions, drugs, alcohol, sex, work, you know, chocolate. I don't know, <laughs> whatever. Um, uh, those things that uh, we sell ourselves out to and become uh, a, a force, a master over our life. Uh, those things are obvious, but there's a thousand far more subtle ways, right? that we can become captive to our sin. And most of them start with the word self. So anything that starts with the word self is going to be a lie of Satan that he is going to use to bring you into bondage. For example, self-pity. Self-pity is becoming a slave to my own hardship. Uh, Enjoying my own suffering and holding on to it so that I feel sorry for myself and I became, become a self to uh, the comfort I hope to get through my own martyrdom, right? That's self-pity. Uh, self-glory. Uh, self-glory is becoming a slave to my own reputation and my own image, right? And needing to always please people so they will need me and like me. Needing people to admire and respect me. Needing people to look up to me, right? And when we, when we believe those things will give us importance and worth, It becomes a master over us. And we start living our life to get affirmation from people or to impress people, right? Uh, You can go down the list. Self-supporting, okay? sounds like a good word. I want to be self-supporting. I want to be independent, right? Well, what that means is uh, it means I am taken captive by my own independence, a determination to take care of myself and never need help from anyone else, okay? I am a rock. I am an island, Okay? I'm going, to, I'm going to be on my own man and I'm going to take care of myself and I'm not going to need other people because they always let me down, right? And so all these are lies of Satan mostly originating with the self uh, to meet my own needs in my own way apart from God's promise and God's plan. And the world has a great promise. The world promises this. And, of course, it's not promised as evil, okay? Don't be deceived that because it looks good, it must be good, Okay? Satan puts things in front of us that look enticing, inviting. And his lie says, it's not evil, it's not bad. It's, it's, it's getting what you want, right? And those things take us captive, and that's how sin works. Well, how, does, how do we fall captive? Well, it's interesting, when you look at Lot, it's interesting to kind of look at how we ended up in this, this mess. Uh, how does it happen that we so easily can be taken captive? Um, you go back to chapter thirteen, and Lot had the opportunity to pick anywhere in the Promised Land. Abraham offers to him to pick anywhere he wants, and where does Lot pick? Well, he picks outside the promise. He looks, I think, very unconsciously and unwittingly. I don't think he consciously made this decision, but as he looked around, instead of looking toward the promise of God, he looked toward the world, right? He looked toward ease and comfort, and he looked toward. The easy way out, and he sees this lush green valley, and that's where he goes. Um, we, We get led astray when we start doubting God's promises. When we start believing, well, let's put it this way. We start doubting that God really has our best interest in mind. Yeah, sure, he saved us. Yeah, sure, someday there's the whole heaven thing. But right now, I don't know if God really knows what I need. I don't know if God's really paying attention to me. So I better kind of help him out a bit, right? And so we come up with our own plans. We come up with our own devices. We start believing uh, subtly Satan's lies, right? And we find ourselves instead of moving toward and firmly anchoring ourselves in God's promise like Lot, we move to the very edge of the promise, right? The promise is still there. You know, I can go visit it anytime I want, right? I haven't like turned my back on the promise, but I'm... I'm definitely not in the middle of God's promise. I'm 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 moving away from it. Right. And that's what we see Lot doing. Uh, he starts seeing that for him, joy and happiness, security, comfort, can be found outside the promise, and so that's where he starts looking. Uh, then uh, disaster strikes, and here he thought he was in a place where he would be secure, comfortable, safe. Right. And the enemy comes, and uh, you know King Sodom and all these other guys put on their cool nifty armor and pull out their swords. And Lot's going, Bravo, Bravo, Go King! Right? And they go out to battle, and well, Lot's so excited because he's protected. And here comes the kings of the east, and he's watching through his binoculars. Kings of the east come down. King Sodom and moves up. You know, there's kind of a bit of a face-off. The kings of the east go, Ha! And King Sodom turns and they run. <laughs> Lot's going, No, don't run, right? And poof, they're gone. Right? Where's his protection? Where's the promise? Right? That's what happens. When we trust in the world, okay, when it comes to the real test, what happens? Well, the promise fails, right? It doesn't work. And so here Lot finds himself invaded because there was no one to fight for him. And I find this really in the story amazing. In fact, it's interesting. The names of the king, especially the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, their names uh, actually have in them the word wicked or evil. All right? uh, now, we don't know if, uh, if it's a word play that the author was kind of twisting their name a bit to make the point. But the idea is these guys had a reputation as just evil, wicked people. And they are not men who know how to stand firm in God's courage and strength. And so when danger comes, this is the way it is in the world. When you are trusting in the shallow, empty promises of the world, when difficulties come, you are then controlled and mastered by fear. Right? And so in fear, they don't stand and take courage. And, and get this. I mean, here's these guys, these men, armed, ready for battle, ready to go to fight. And when the enemy comes, they run to the hills and stand idly by, watching their wives drug off as prisoners. Okay? Cowards dominated and controlled and mastered by fear. Right? If you're going to go to battle, you fight to you either die fighting right, or you win. You don't run and watch them take away your wife and your children and your family. Right? And may, remarkably, you know, the kings of these take off and they go a long way. I'll show you in a minute. I don't want to look at the map, but they go a long way. And the kings of the valley, the kings of the Dead Sea, do nothing. Okay, not only do they not fight and stand up and defend their cities when they should have, but afterwards, they just sit around and drink coffee. Oh, boy, that was kind of a bummer. Like, we lost everything. I don't know what to do. Okay, just, uh, yeah, something's missing here. Something's missing. Wicked, selfish kings who, who cannot stand up and fight and protect those in their care. Okay. Selfish care only for their own self their own self-preservation, their own life. Can't even fight to defend their families. And that's how we get drug off. We put our trust in someone who will not fight for us, who does not care about us, and in the end, whose promises fail. And that's how we get drug off, and we find ourselves captive. Well, thankfully, the story does not end there. Word comes to uh, Abram, Uh, It says, One of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram the Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove belonging to Mamre the Amorite. Mamre and his relatives, Eshcol and Aner, were Abram's allies. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued the kings of the east until he caught up with them at Dan. Okay, so word comes to Abram. Uh, that your your nephew Lot has been captured by the kings of the east, and Lot doesn't just sit. I mean, Abraham doesn't just sit still; he takes action. Uh, and it's interesting. Uh, it says that we, this is the first kind of hint of this in the, in the Abraham story. It says he marshals, literally, he's, he uh, What's the word? He um, I lost this. An English word for this. He calls out, summons. What do, do? what do you do? You muster. Mobilize. Mobilizes, or musters. You muster the troops, right? You muster the troops? Mobilizes. Anyway, he calls out the troops. Okay, and the word that's used there is a word that means uh, engaging a military army, a force, right? And it also says that they're trained men 318 of them. Okay, so you get a picture of Abraham's wealth. God has indeed blessed Abraham. Okay, he's got a household with 318 armed servants, right? And he's prepared them. Uh, these guys are not just farmers. Uh, Abraham, ha- Abraham has been training and equipping them to do battle. Right? They're prepared. Okay, they've got swords, they've got weapons, and they know how to use them. Right? Uh, wh- why is that? Well, one reason is that it's apparent Abraham was a bit paranoid. <laughs> okay? uh, seems to be part of his nature. But if you live in a place where people can invade you anytime, I think I would be a bit paranoid too. And Abraham took steps, as God blessed him, to prepare himself to face enemies. Okay? Abraham was a guy prepared to go to battle. He had done his work to get ready. And so when the time comes, he's got fighting men, 318 men, to go to battle. Now, uh, the way the story lays out, his uh, 318 men is impressive. I mean, that's not a bad personal army. Uh, it's probably still far, uh, far less than the kings of the east. Okay, it's pretty likely that the kings of the east for, for what they were able to do, and the whole point of the whole background of the story is to demonstrate these guys were a force to be reckoned with. Okay, a considerable fighting force that no other city, no other coalition, had been able to stand against. So certainly, they were way more than three hundred eighteen guys. But that does not matter to Abraham. Okay, he cares about his nephew, he's not selfish, he's not thinking of himself, and he's not governed by fear. He knows God 's promise and he can step out in faith, and he can take action to go rescue Lot. So that's exactly what he does. And he chases now if we could pull up the map, the, the map now, guys, uh, this is a map of, of uh, Canaan. Uh, Abram lived at Hebron, okay? If you look down at the very bottom. It says Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the Valley of the Dead Sea, the most likely location of Sodom and Gomorrah, under what's now underwater, part of the Dead Sea. The uh, army captured them at Sodom and Gomorrah, and left and went on the east side of the Jordan River all the way up to Dan, the very top of the map. Okay, it's a long way. Abraham mobilizes his forces and chases them from Hebron all the way up to Dan. Okay, that's to me is impressive. You know, he didn't just go a couple of miles; he chased them. I don't know, maybe 100, 100, 150 kilometers, right, hunting down this army. Um, he gets there, and he's very strategic in his, in his battle plan. It says that uh, there, when he got there to Dan, he divided his men and attacked during the night, right? So he doesn't just foolishly charge into battle in the middle of the day. He knows he's outnumbered. So he's strategic, he thinks about this, and he divides his troops up, he divides his men, he attacks at night when uh, the army is unprepared and disoriented, and the result is that the army flees and uh, heads off towards Damascus, even farther north, and, and Abraham does not give up the, 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 the pursuit. He pursues the army until he gets what he wants. And he finally defeats the army, uh, and he gets back all the captives and all the possessions, right? Everything. Uh, impressive victory on his part. It says that he recovered all the goods, and he, and he brought back his, his nephew Lot with his possessions, and all the women and all the captives. Right? So he's not, just, he's not just concerned about Lot, but he's concerned about all those who have been taken captive. And he returns them back to their people. Um, so you see these qualities in Abraham. He's trusting God. He's not living in fear. He is prepared for battle. He is strategic, and he's determined. Um, and in the end, he is victorious. Uh, it's interesting. The story ends. We're going to look next week at his his uh, meeting with Melchizedek, but I just want you to point out. I want to point out one thing. Uh, he comes back, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, meets him, and he said. Uh, he blesses Abraham uh, with this blessing. Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Why was Abram successful? Well, it helped that he was strategic. It helped that he was prepared. It helped that he had 318 guys who could go out there and be crazy with him. But why was he successful? Well, because God used him... To bring deliverance, right? God, uh, see and see that's that's what that's kind of the point of this. How you will be blessed? Uh, how will you be a blessing? Well, by this, God is choosing now to operate and to bring His redemption, to bring His rescue of the oppressed through people like Abraham. Right? Now, could God have done this some other way? Well, absolutely. Uh, God was very creative in wiping people out, right? Uh, and he could be very selective. Uh, I mean he could make the ground open up and swallow the bad guys and leave the, the good guys safe. Okay, God could have wiped out these evil kings in the East. God could have sent down fire. He could have confused them. He could have caused them to kill each other. These are all things that God has done at one point or another in Scripture. But primarily, God has chosen now to bring miraculous saving. Deliverance through people who he was blessing. Okay? It was now his plan to work through people like Abraham to bring salvation. And Melchizedek identifies that. Um, What's the point for us? Okay, it's a cool story. Uh, It ought to encourage us, you know. But how does it encourage us? Well, the reality is that we are daily involved in a very similar battle. Okay? Scripture is very clear that we are in the midst of spiritual warfare, and we experience it in our own life as we feel that pull, a sin oftentimes takes us captive, right? Uh, And we see it in the lives of people around us. Every day, Satan is trying to snatch away our children, our spouse, our parents, our siblings, our friends, our neighbors, okay? Uh, And oftentimes... We know that he's successful, right? If we're spiritually tuned in, we see people around us who are being captured by the enemy. I'm not mean. I don't mean they're losing their salvation, or you know. I'm just saying, Satan has power over their life, and sins, bad thinking, bad habits, bad lifestyle choices are keeping them from really walking in the midst of God's promise, and they are being brought under bondage by evil. They're not living in the freedom that God has designed for us. And uh, when we ask this question, how are we to be a blessing to others? first way I think we can learn from Abraham is that we are to be a blessing to others by fighting other people's battles. We're called to bless people by entering into battle for others when they're losing. How do we do that? Well, simply, I think there's three ways that we do that. First thing is doing battle or going to the war of prayer. Okay, being prayer warriors. Uh, God has called us to be intercessors, praying for each other. And the reality is that when people are are brought under spiritual bondage, okay, the place where you will have a you will you make a difference in their life is by prayer. Right. If we cannot and do not know how to engage in the battle of prayer for people, we have no other real weapons. And I'm going to talk about a couple other weapons, but our primary weapon is the weapon of intercessory prayer. Uh, I don't understand how or why God chose to work this way. But God has chose to work in the world in response to the prayers and petitions of his believers. Right? Now, I don't know that that's such a good plan. And if we were to take a vote, maybe many of us would say, God, you're putting too much in our hands. Don't do that. But the reality is that is exactly what God has done. He has made prayer powerful and effective because he has decided that he will work in response to it. That's why James says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Okay? And in the context of that passage, it's very much talking about this. It's talking about the elders in the church going to war, fighting spiritual battles through prayer for people in the church who are captive in bondage to sin. Do we know how to use these weapons? Uh, Abram was affected because he was prepared and equipped in this battle. Uh, He knew how to fight, he had practiced. The reality is that oftentimes prayer for us sits as a tool. Largely unused gathering dust. And when strategic times come in our life when we need to be fighting those battles, we are so unpracticed and undeveloped in using the skill of intercessory prayer, knowing how to wield its power over our own life, much less somebody else's life, our prayers are weak and empty. And at the times when we probably need them most, if we have not been developing the skill, we pray and nothing happens, and then we're convinced it doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work if you don't know how to use it. Okay, it's a powerful weapon. Using the wrong hands, you know, it's kind of like a gun. If you don't know how to use it, you'll just shoot yourself in the foot. And that's what happens to a lot of people with prayer, right? because they haven't studied and learned and and, and uh, practiced its use. We don't get very good at it, and the, and when we need it most, and it fails us, we're convinced it doesn't work. We need to be developing our own prayer habits. And our own skill in intercessory prayer. Uh, You know, don't be like King Sodom. Uh, When they came and drug off his family, he was powerless to do anything about it. And sadly, with too many believers, when Satan comes and drags out their children or their neighbor or people around them or their own spouse, they are powerless to do anything about it because they do not know how to pray. Okay, scripture is full of instructions on how to pray. And we need to know how to exercise its power in spiritual warfare. Just recently, uh, I, got an, I got an email through Facebook. I love Facebook. Somebody uh, from a former member of my church back in the States who I have not seen or been in contact with for like ten years uh, now, almost nine years. And uh, she wrote this. Um, Dear Tim, you were our our spiritual leader before, and I trust you and miss you as that in our lives now. I really need someone to say a prayer for me and for my family. My sister is very heavy into drugs, and uh, uh, and I'm trying to help the family get involved in helping her. They think she's okay, but I see all the bad stuff. They don't know I'm the bad sister for bringing it all to light. So a prayer from you would be a great comfort. Uh, I am now questioning if I'm doing the right thing. Thank you for listening. So uh, I was encouraged that she saw prayer as an answer to, to breaking the bondage over for her sister. And so I began praying, and I told her I would pray, and I began praying. Um, and I just got this e- email this week. She says, Hi, Tim, I wanted to let you know that I think my sister is on a road to recovery. She has started to go to church again, and the drugs, she's and she's taking drugs less and less. Our relationship is on the mend, though I think that will take some time. I can't thank you enough for taking the time for to pray for us. It really means so much to me that I can still call on you for help. Now this is the get this. This is just sad. Okay, this is just sad. She says you are the only minister that has ever made a difference in our life. Thank you for that. I'm thinking. How sad. And I don't share that story because I'm anything great. I did not save her sister. I just prayed, right? God, in response to prayer, is working in her life. I prayed. Uh, But how sad that here's a person who lives in in a community where she goes to church, is involved with other Christian people, is involved with other pastors, and feels that none of them can pray for her in a way that's powerful and effective, that can make a difference, Right? Do, do people look at us as a source of power and help when they are in trouble that we can pray and things will happen? Right? Uh, that's what we all should be. Not just pastors, not just preachers. Every believer ought to be effective in using these weapons. Right? Um, so we need to be diligent and determined. We need to be persistent. Abram did not give up. He was diligent till he got the answer. Right? Uh, praying for people doesn't mean we pray absentmindedly one time some quick, empty prayer and then forget about it, right? You ever do this? I do this a lot. Oh yeah, I'll pray for you. Oh God, you know, help them. And I go my way and you know, I'm not fighting a battle for them. Right? We need to enter into war for people. We need to stick with praying for them until we see God work and move. Okay? It may be weeks, it may be days, it may be years. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to fight for people that we love? Uh, secondly, real quick, let me wrap up quickly. Secondly, we do battle through the truth. Uh, we pray. We also need to share the truth. And the, the you, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. People, we combat bad ideas by, by the right truth from the Word of God. But we need to be strategic in how we do that. Okay? Uh, helping fight the battle with truth doesn't mean we attack the oppressed and and the captured with the Bible right got to be strategic got to be sneaky okay Abraham snuck into the camp in the middle of the night and he was he planned out his attack because he knew he had limited resources right um, one of our daughters at one point in her life uh, was and well you know all of, all of our daughters but I'm thinking of one in particular who uh, was 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 under captivity, right? And just like all our family, all the time, there are times when we fall into bondage. And uh, we were praying for her, uh, and, you know, we really, I really wanted to beat her over the head with the Bible, right? right? But God pointed out to me that that really would not help, right? So I did not beat her over the head with the Bible. And uh, instead, God said, you know, you need to b- find ways to bring the truth of God's word by listening, by finding out her questions, and by answering those questions with Scripture at the right time. And that takes patience, it takes relationship, it takes listening. Uh, but slowly, God would open little doors, little tiny cracks, little cracks, where she would, uh, would find out the questions. We would try to answer those questions with Scripture gently. Okay? Not, not, not using the Bible as a grenade launcher, but gently trying to insert truth to counter those bad ideas, right? Not preaching, listening, right? So we need to be that way. Uh, Learning how to uh, minister the word into people's lives. Finally, uh, the, the ultimate power over sin is the gospel, okay? We need to know how to be ministering the gospel message. And sadly, oftentimes we think that the gospel is something we get saved by, And then we leave it behind, never to use again. Okay, wrong thinking. The gospel is the only power that breaks uh, the oppression, the bondage of sin in our life every day. Okay, learning to live and realize we can't do it on our own, that it's by Jesus' death, by his pouring of his blood, and by his resurrection, that sin, death, darkness, evil, the, the powers of the world are broken. We need to learn how to minister in those as well. We need to learn how to be walking, uh, as, as Paul says in Ephesians, armed with the armor of God, the helmet uh, of salvation, uh, the breastplate of righteousness, taking out the sword of the Spirit, praying. Right? Uh, the reality is, and right now, you know people, maybe people in your family, maybe people close to you, who are being drug off captive, right? Uh, Who would God have you uh, go after in prayer, in in serious intercession, doing battle until you see uh, the righteous work of the gospel carried out in their life? Let's pray. Father, we uh, first of all just thank you so much for the power of the cross, that it is completely by the work of Jesus that we are set free from sin and death and the enemy that is trying to destroy us. Uh, Lord, we are often led captive by sin and by evil into death, into destruction, into slavery. But Jesus came, that by His death, by His blood, uh, by His resurrection power, we can find life in You. And Lord, we want to be uh, slaves of You alone. we want to seek joy in Your promise alone. And Lord, we want to know how to be uh, effective warriors who know how to intervene in the lives of people around us who are, who are struggling in the battle today. And I do pray even right now for anybody in this room who would admit that they are being held captive, that sin right now has a hold in their life and they seem unable to break it. Lord God, you are the power over sin. The work of Jesus is the absolute power that breaks the grip of sin over our life. And Lord, I pray today that that every person in this room would find your your rescue, uh, your power over sin, that they could walk in the freedom and new life that you promise. Lord, help us be warriors for you. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.